0: There are um, some secrets in this world that if we discover them or if we unravel them, they would completely change our lives, completely transform our lives. I was really surprised to hear that KFC uh, has managed to keep its recipe a secret uh, since 1930 when Colonel Harlan Saunders Made it Now, I know for some of you, all the healthy people, you're like, well, they can keep it a secret, they can lose it. It doesn't matter. Um, but I thought it was just absolutely fascinating in a world where information uh, is on our fingertips 24-7 that they've still managed to keep this a mystery. Now, some of you going to are saying, well, that's not really going to change my life, but how about this one? One of the other great secrets to discover uh, that will completely change your life because it will make you rich, uh, is if you can decipher the Beal ciphers or the Beal pages. We'll put it up on screen for you. Uh, people are divided as to whether this is true or as to whether this is a hoax, but this is what they are. They're a set of three cipher texts or three pages, uh, one of which allegedly states that s- states the location of a buried treasure of gold, silver, and jewels listen to this, estimated to be worth over 43 million US dollars as of January 2018. So comprising these three ciphertexts or these three pages, the first is unsolved, Uh, that describes where the location is. Uh, The second one has been solved and that is the content of the treasure, that's why we know it's worth 43 million US dollars. And the third one is, still remains unsolved as well, and that lists the names of the treasure's owners and their next of kin, and here's the deal. They say that if you can decipher the two remaining pages, you will be rewarded with 12 million US dollars in gold. Now, I would say that's pretty much of, of a game changer, right? That will change our lives. I mean, you, you could go uh, you know, buy the house or the houses that you've always wanted, you could buy the car or the cars you've always wanted, you on that, that dream holiday that you've always wanted. You could do whatever you want. The problem is, though, the problem we would all run into is that we would still be stuck with ourselves, meaning all of the internal problems that we have that lead to these external problems that we have would still plague us, and I'm guessing we would find ourselves in similar, if not the same, with the same issues that we had before the 12 million you see, the ultimate secret, the ultimate secret that we need to discover is how do we overcome ourselves? How do we overcome ourselves? How do we overcome our sin? Especially the sin that keeps tripping us up time and time again. How do we overcome our insecurities that, that kind of hold or inhibit our lives, that they stop us from living the way we want to live? How do we become better fathers? How do we become better husbands, better employers? How do, we, how do we become better witnesses of Jesus in the workplace? How do I grow spiritually? Just kind of feel like I'm stuck in this same place. How do I overcome my anger? How do I overcome my impatience? How do I overcome my pride and all of these other character shortfalls? You see, if we can discover the secret to overcoming those things, those would be some serious game changers. And there are, there are two opposite groups who think they've discovered the secrets to living the Christian life. The first one, oddly enough, is called quietism. Uh, this is very much a, a mystical approach to, Christian, to the Christian life. Some say it has its roots uh, in Eastern religions like Buddhism or, or Hinduism. Uh, and, and like the name suggests, it's, it's a very quiet, a very passive way of relating to God. Um, as believers, we, you know, they say we don't play an active role in our spiritual growth at all. You might have heard or you, you might have even said the, the statement, let go and let God. Uh, and, and I believe we say that from a very well-intentioned heart. You know, we, we so desire for God to have His way in our lives or in a particular situation. We just don't want to get in the way. We don't want to sabotage it at all. But this view goes as far as to say that any form of participation from our side is a hindrance even when it comes to obeying clear imperatives or clear commands in the Bible, like, like go and make disciples of all nations. They say, no, 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 unless Jesus does something in me, I will not take a step of obedience, even if it's clearly mandated in God's word. So this passivity uh, can cause Christians to even disobey God's word. They believe that you can become so submerged in God, so totally surrendered to God, that you can actually achieve a sinless, perfect life in this day and age. Again, to which the Bible says we can't because it clearly says that we'll only be perfected on the day of Christ when Christ returns. The problem with this view is that when you sin, who is to blame? Because the logic of this movement is, if I am totally surrendered to God and then I sin, well, well, whose fault can it be? You know, I'm surrendered to to God. He should have given me the power not to give in to the temptation. So we can either continue to sin because we're just waiting for God to give us the power not or to stop sinning, or we can become despondent and disillusioned. Maybe that God doesn't have the power to help us overcome our life issues. The other extreme view is what we call pietism. And these guys are all about self-effort. Now, they do emphasize some good things like Bible study and prayer and holiness uh, and other spiritual disciplines. But the problem is that they can get a little bit out of balance where everything becomes about self-effort, absolute reliance on yourself, on your own strength. And we see some problems here too. For instance, if you do succeed, in overcoming a particular temptation or not sinning, then you are filled with pride. God doesn't get any of the glory because it was all you. You did it out of your own strength and your own ability. But when you do fail in a particular sin or temptation, then we're left in absolute despondency, especially if we keep failing time and time again to the same sin. We become despondent because we have nothing but ourselves to blame because you are the only resource against your sin. So what then is the secret to living a God-glorifying Christian life? Is it God's work or is it our work? And the answer is yes. Have a look at how Paul puts it to the Philippians. Philippians chapter two, verses 12 to 13, just two verses this morning as we continue our study through the book of Philippians. Paul writes and he says, therefore, my beloved, remember the therefore is there out of uh, the context which we looked at last week and where we saw the supreme sacrificial humility of Jesus which we are to embody ourselves, which we are to follow. And again, we thinking, well, how do I do that? How do I be as humble as Jesus? Well, here we go, here's the secret. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, because remember Paul's in prison, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we can sum up what Paul is saying by saying this, we can discover the secret to the Christian life by obediently working out what is being divinely worked in us. We can obediently work out what God is divinely working in us. For those of you who like your theological terms, essentially we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification here. And a simple way of explaining what that is, it's our growth in our spiritual maturity or us becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more Christ-like. Now, this is a progressive work in which we increasingly grow uh, um, free from sin and, and our desire to sin and increasingly more desirous to live for Jesus and to live like Jesus. Now, that sounds great, but how I always say it, or I would like to describe it, it's an untidy doctrine. It's a messy doctrine, meaning it's never a smooth ride. I mean, if sin tasted like asparagus, I would be the holiest and most sanctified person alive. Unfortunately, sin often looks like chocolate cake and even tastes like chocolate cake except with a really nasty aftertaste, a really nasty sting that leaves you feeling guilty and leaves you feeling full of shame. So here's how we're gonna tackle it this morning. We can live out the Christian life by discovering number one, what we obediently have to work out or live out, and then secondly, discover what it is, uh, what exactly is being divinely worked in us. So here we go. Number one, what is it that we have to obediently work out? Uh, how many of you, looking at the older generation, how many of you remember the movie, What Woman Want, uh, way back in the year 2000? Anyone? Okay, cool. Five of us, great. Um uh, it starred Mel Gibson and, and Helen Hunt, and essentially, Mel Gibson's character was was a bit of a chauvinist and a bit of a player. Uh, you know, he could—he's a great salesman. He could sell anything and seduce any woman. Uh, until one hilarious night, he, he falls backwards into a bathtub while holding a hairdryer and gets electrocuted. But the next morning, he wakes up with this incredible gift where he can hear women's inner thoughts. And uh, at first, he begins to use this to his advantage, especially further his career. Um, but then towards the end of the movie, he has a change of heart and change of character. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make is that he receives this, this miracle, if you like, something that all of us guys would love to have. Um, but then the prerogative or the responsibility is on him not to be a quietist, not to be placid about it, but to actually respond to it, to actually live it out. So he discovers the secret to what women want, and then he begins to apply it to his life. It begins to affect the way, uh, the way he lives his life. And so in a similar way, Paul, Paul here says that we also have received an incredible gift. We received a, a miraculous gift that we too must live out. Look at verse 12 again. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Here we go. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Or the NRV says, continue to work out your salvation. So this gift, this miracle that we have, that we are to work out, is our salvation. So what exactly does that mean? Well, some people wrongly interpret it as work for your salvation, meaning you have to demonstrate through, through good, pious acts that you qualify to be forgiven of all of your sins and qualify to enter glory one day. Others interpret it as you need to work on your salvation, meaning what Jesus accomplished on the cross was insufficient. We kind of have to prop up what He did on the cross with our own good deeds, This is what a lot of uh, the Judaistic false teachers were saying in in Paul's day and age. They were saying, no, listen, go ahead. You can believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's great. But you just have to kind of prop up or you have to, in order to maintain your salvation, you also have to continue observing the old covenant law and all of these other Jewish traditions. We call this a, a Jesus plus theology. Jesus, what He did, and who He is, Jesus plus your own meritorious works will result in salvation. Now this comes naturally to us because this is how the world works. This is how the world is wide. You know, you put in all the hard yards and you will get your reward. The problem is we can't apply that to God. The prophet Isaiah, some 700 years before the birth of Jesus, he prophesied in in Isaiah uh, 64, verse six, he said that even our good deeds, our pious deeds, our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. This is how holy and this is how high God's standards are and how sinful we are in relation to Him. That even our good deeds are so tainted by our sin that they're unacceptable before God, and that we could never attain his standards. So the good news of the gospel is that the salvation that we have is a gift of grace. It's a gift of mercy. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 8. Paul writes, he says, "'For by grace you have been saved through faith.'" And this is not your own doing, he says, it is the gift of God, not a result of works. So we we didn't need to work on it. We didn't need to work for it. Here's why he says, so that no one may boast. So that you can't even take a little bit of credit and say, oh, I just, you know, I kinda just had to prop up what he did on the cross a little bit. No, no, God gets all the glory. He gets all the glory for his unconditional grace, his unconditional love and mercy towards us as sinners. The other thing we need to understand correctly about that phrase, work out, is that it was written in the, the present continuous tense until its completion. It means that we have to persevere until its completion. This is something that we ought to continue persevering in. So this, this speaks of a habit, this speaks of a lifestyle. So can you see how, how quietism doesn't fit in here? Let me give you another picture of how the word was originally used to refer to effort, uh, it was referred to the Romans who had these mines in Spain. And so that same verb phrase was used to describe them working out the mines. And so they owned these mines and they, they would uh, extract all of the silver, all of the silver that they could possibly find out of these mines. So every day they would persevere in going down into these mines and, and, and working out all of the silver to the surface. And so God has saved us. And in a sense, given us the mine of salvation and and we are to persevere in, in living out the implications, mining out the implications and the characteristics of the salvation. But this is going to require obedience. Look at what Paul says, again, in verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, as you've always obeyed in living out your salvation. So the working out salvation is an act of obedience. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. Quick examples from the Bible, commands that the Bible gives us to live out as a demonstration of the salvation that we have. Look at Romans six nineteen. He says, for just as, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So notice that that's in the past tense before Jesus graciously saved you. He goes on, he says, so now present, now, now in, the, in the presence, in, in light of your salvation, so now present your members, your body, as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. You see that, that's what we're talking about, sanctification, working out or living out our salvation. And so one way that we do that is by obediently no longer presenting our bodies as instruments of sin, to do sin, as slaves to sin, but now as slaves to righteousness, to live out the righteousness of Jesus. And that's gonna to lead to even more spiritual maturity, even more conformity into the image and likeness of Jesus. So this is an, an everyday, all day working out. Look at 2 Corinthians 7.1. He says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit by, uh, sorry, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You notice who the responsibility is on there? we have to cleanse ourselves and bring holiness to completion. But we, we, remember, we, we don't do this to be saved because we already have the salvation. We work it out from salvation. So we, we kind of go down into the mine of salvation and we bring out all these precious jewels of holiness. Go back to Philippians, Philippians 1.27, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Your manner of life, your conduct in life, uh, your way of life. He says it must demonstrate who Jesus is. It must demonstrate what Jesus has done for us. We're not working on our salvation. We're not working for our salvation. We are working out in our lives what we already have. We're we're not being quietistic or passive in it either. But now what I want us to see is how we go about working out that salvation. By that I mean the attitude that we are to have. The right heart attitude will protect us from extreme piety where we don't fall into pride when we overcome sin, or we don't fall into absolute disappointment and despondency when we fail in our sin. Paul says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he tells us uh, why in the next verse, which is the flip side of the same coin, but at the moment, we can just say it like this. we, We are to have fear and trembling because God has worked salvation in us. Or we can just simply say, because we belong to God. So therefore, out of reverence and awe for God, it's another way of translating it, out of reverence and awe for God, we are to vigorously fight for our sanctification. Because God has so graciously saved us, we humbly fight off sin, and we fight to put on Jesus. Chris Vogel explains it like this, he says, how often do we hear of the need to fear God? And then he says this, and I think he's so right. He says, Christian culture today portrays a God who is too much our friend to ever give us reason enough to tremble, but that is to our own detriment. He says, when we see the darkness of our own heart, the weakness of our resolve, the power of temptation to sin, he says we should be filled with dread at offending God. He says there should be a fear, not of what he might do to us, because remember, Jesus took our punishment on the cross, but he says, but of the hurt that we might do to him. You ever think about it that way? William Barclay says it like this, he says, it is not the fear and trembling which drives us to hide from God, but rather the fear and trembling which drives us to seek God. So our attitude in our sanctification is so important because how we see God and how we feel about God determines how serious we will take our conduct before Him. Like, oh God, He's just like a big teddy bear, right? Just so full of grace and mercy, He'll forgive me anyway. Grace is not an excuse to sin. Grace is the power to not sin. Grace is the power to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Grace is not just about forgiveness, it's the power to say no to sin. Grace awakens deeper affections and reverence for God and deeper hatred and disdain for our sin. It's precisely this fear and this trembling for God that is awakened by grace, that drives our desire to work out our salvation, not in pride or out of self-effort. So sometimes we need to put our fear and we need to put our trembling in the right place. We need to stop fearing man. Stop fearing what others might think of you. Otherwise, we'll always compromise on our Christian values. We'll all just push down what Jesus is working in us. We, know, we need to stop fearing the culture that we're living in and stand firmly on what we believe. We need to fear the one who has given us this incredible gift of salvation and honor him by living it out. So hopefully we're all thinking, well, well how can I have this grace awaken fear and trembling? We get it when we discover what is being divinely worked in us. So point number two, let's figure out what is being divinely worked in us. Look again from verse 12, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now here how it's, here's how it's possible to do this. He says, verse 13, for, here comes the reason, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Can you see why it's so important that we hold both of these verses in tension? If we just focus on verse 12, it will lead to, prideful piety, or if we just focus on verse 13, it will lead to passive quietism. But both together, we see the only reason why we can work out our salvation is because God Almighty is working within us. We work out what He's working in us. The second thing I want us to realize about these verses is that they they are, or they should be, some of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture, I mean, I I had the week to think about this, but just take this moment to think about who God is. Think about who God is. God Almighty, right? The creator of the universe, the ruler of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the epitome of holiness, the epitome of love, the epitome of righteousness, the epitome of justice, grace, and love is at work within us as believers. He doesn't just simply grant us salvation and leave us off to, to fend off our sin in our own strength and to fight for our holiness in our own strength. Like, okay, cool, I've granted you salvation. Now, good luck, hope to see you at the other end. No, he, he comes and he makes his home in us by, by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He lovingly comes to work in us what we could never do in our own strength. Picture a stick, a, a stick that's fallen from an apple tree. Uh, and it would be completely insane and loopy of us to put pressure on the stick now to produce apples. Uh, it has to be connected to the life giving and, and fruit producing ability of the tree. But a piistic stick kind of flops around vigorously on the ground trying its best to produce an apple. Whereas the quiistic stick just believes that the quieter it lies, the more passive it lies, that one day it will have an apple. No, there has to be a connection. Jesus himself said in John 15 that he said that he is the vine, and we are the branches. And apart from him, apart from being connected to him, we cannot do anything. We cannot produce any fruit of the Christian life without being spiritually connected to him. In fact, the word works is where we get our English word energy from. Paul is saying that, that God is the energizer of our sanctification, the energizer of our growth. So what exactly is he energizing or producing in us? He says, God is working in us both to will and to work. He's wanting to work on our desires and our deeds. I was thinking, this is just absolute genius from God. It's a genius move because he knows, he knows that if he can change, if he can renew our wills and our desires, he can change our lives. He can change our lifestyles, change our behavior. So, what's the first thing he begins to produce in us? One scholar said, holy discontent, holy discontent. What that means is that the more he works in us, the more discontent we become with our spiritual status quo. We we begin to hate our spiritual weaknesses or we we become so sensitive to our spiritual weaknesses. Like, I wish I was more humble, I wish I was more generous, or we begin to loathe our sin and we begin to desire to be more righteous. That's holy discontentment. Not discontent with your physical circumstances, the places and the the spaces where God has put you, but our our inner life. When people come and speak to me about their spiritual weaknesses and and their sins, I always ask them, "Well, well, how did they make you feel? And I say, oh no, Jason! I I, I hated it. I, I felt so terrible. I feel so frustrated. When 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 is this thing going to stop tripping me up? I've had people in tears, crying because they're so frustrated because they loathe their sin so much. And then sometimes I I get the smile on my face. Not always, but I get a smile on my face, and they say. Why on earth would you have a smile on your face right now? I'm busy confessing my sin to you. I'm busy telling you my struggles. Why would you be smiling? And then my smile kind of gets a little bit bigger. And then I say, because you hate it. Because you hate it. Because you're struggling. Because you have holy discontent that shows me that someone is at work within you. You know what absolutely crushes me? Is when they show no displeasure in what they've done or no remorse. Then from there, God works in us. Number two, holy aspirations. This is when we desire to live for Jesus. In other words, he begins to create in us a longing, a yearning. As one scholar said, a longing for something better, a longing for something purer, a longing for something holy, a longing for something righteous, a longing for something true, a longing to be like Christ, a longing to be godly, a longing to be virtuous, a longing to be victorious. He begins to give us an appetite for something else, a far superior appetite to replace the appetite for sin. I don't wanna feel full of pride because I have this yearning in me to be humble like Jesus like we saw last week. Or I don't wanna look at pornography anymore because I have this growing appetite to fill my mind with righteousness, to fill my mind with truth, with purity. And so like we said, this is absolute genius from God because if He can produce these new desires in us, this new will in us, He can then change the way we work. He works in us to will and to work. You change the will, you change the work. So the next thing He changes then is our holy resolve. So these new desires don't just stay desires, uh, but God energizes us to put them into action, into holy resolutions. So for instance, so how, how am I gonna work on my humility? Well, well I'm gonna have, have a desire to read the Bible and I, I come across 1 Peter 5, verses six to seven, which says I humble myself by casting all of my cares, all of my burdens, all of my anxieties onto God. I'm no longer gonna try and handle them myself. I'm gonna give them to the sovereign creator of the universe who then promises to lift me up in due time. Well, how am I gonna fight pornography? Just start getting this, this yearning and, and this desire to, to fight it. And, and so we, we, we go out and we try and find an, an accountability partner or we, we put protection software on our computers. And then we get this desire to, to fill our minds, to renew our minds on the truth. And so we get a Bible reading plan because we've read that, this, that the truth, God's truth sets us free and it sanctifies us, John seventeen seventeen. Now this doesn't mean that everything will go swimmingly well. Because remember in the beginning I said that this the doctrine of sanctification is a an untidy doctrine, it's a messy doctrine, because sometimes uh, our desire to sin overcomes our wills and we and we work out our sin instead of working out the righteousness of Jesus. But if God is in us and God is working in us, we feel this holy conviction from Him. And it leads us to repent and then to begin working out what he's working in us again. Now, what do you think would be the reason for God doing this? Oh, well, for our benefit, of course. And so, yes, it is true, but it's not the first and foremost reason. Do you see it in verse 13? He says, God works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this absolutely fascinates me because God is the most complete being he's complete in All of his attributes, he's complete in all of his characteristics. He does not lack in any way. He's complete in his power, he doesn't need our help. He's complete in his love, uh, you know, meaning he's secure. He's complete in his holiness. He's complete in his happiness, so he doesn't need our bad dad jokes to, you know, kind of cheer him up, brighten up his day. He is all sufficient in all who he is, yet the Bible tells us that we can do things that either bring him displeasure or pleasure. So that's a lot of pressure, that's a lot of pressure. How do you please an already all sufficiently pleased God of the universe? How do you please him? Especially with sin lurking within us. Again, the gospel comes in and it tells us, to ensure that we please him, he works within us what is most pleasing to him. It's impossible for us guys, like the movie, it's impossible for us guys to know what women want, right? Absolutely impossible. And so in the same way, God looks at us and goes, well, it's absolutely impossible for them to please me. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna work in them what is most pleasing to me. And what is that? It's him, it's his life. It's His righteousness, it's His holiness, it's His love, it's His grace, it's His mercy. In short, He is busy conforming us into the image of His Son, Jesus, because Jesus is God. That's how and why we know He will be most pleased as we work out or display what He's doing in us. So let me finish off by speaking to two main groups of people here, or, or maybe listening to this or watching this a little bit later. Maybe you, you're here and you, you're kind of still on the fence with this whole Christianity thing. You're kind of still checking it out. But you recognize that even if you did crack those Beale texts that we spoke about in the beginning, even if you did land up with that 12 million US dollars in, in gold, you realize that you'd still be stuck with you. That a lot of your internal problems would result in external problems. Maybe the 12 million would, would compound or even expose those inner problems, those inner, inner securities that we have. So step number one for you is salvation. Step number one is salvation. Coming to faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Believing in Him for who He is and what He did on the cross for you. Forgiving you of all of your sins so that you might receive the gift of salvation, receiving the gift of reconciliation to the Creator of the universe who you now get to call Father. And then begins the untidy and and at times painful process of working out what God who's now in you is working in you for his great pleasure and your ultimate good. You can just make it a very, very simple prayer. Right now, where you are, just make it a very simple prayer. Jesus, would you grant me or would would you just, would you give me the faith to believe in you as my Lord and Savior? that you would forgive me of all of my sins, that you would then come and live in me and start working in me all the things that bring you pleasure and my greatest good. The second group of people are those who already have this incredible gift of salvation. And maybe you've been saying throughout the sermon, well, Jason, I I get it, but I've been trying to work out, I've been trying to live out my salvation, but I'm struggling. And maybe you're struggling for a number of reasons. Maybe you're, you're just struggling to overcome a particular sin. Or maybe you've just fallen into this apathetic state of, of mind where it's just so difficult to, to believe or, or live for God or to work out what He's working in you. And there could be many reasons why. But maybe it's because we've lost the whole fear and trembling part. We've lost the, the awe and the wonder and the reverence for God. And maybe like we said earlier, maybe it's because we have more fear and trembling for what people might think about us. Well, if I say this, if I stop doing that, then, then what are they gonna think? What are they gonna say? And so we begin to suppress what God is working in us. And because of that, we, we're compromising what God is doing in us. Or we have more fear for the culture because it's starting to say some nasty things about the Christian faith. Like, oh, your, your Bible says that about that. You, you believe that? That's hate speech. Which is so ironic, because we believe in the God of love, who is the epitome of love. So here's what we need to do, just two things. Would you remind yourself of what Jesus went through and accomplished on the cross for you. That I was a sinner cut off from God without hope and then Jesus graciously took all my sin upon himself on the cross, paid my penalty, took the full wrath of God in my place so that I might be reconciled to to my heavenly father and just meditate on the gospel Christian meditation is filling your mind, not emptying your mind, filling your mind with the truth, with the gospel. And allow the gospel to massage awe and wonder back into your heart and mind. Fear and trembling for this gracious God of ours. And then number two, secondly, ask ourselves this. What do I know He is working in me that I know I should be working out? What is it that I'm, in other words, suppressing, that I know He's convicting me of, that I know He's working in me, and I know that I should take a step of obedience and live it out? And we will know because He's in us. And we will know because He's given us His book and He wants to fulfill this in us. Because the secret to the Christian life is obediently working out what is being divinely worked in us. And now we know that if we do that, it brings our heavenly Father great, great pleasure and always results in our greatest good. Amen.